Good morning, church family. Again, hasn't it been a good day to be in the house of the Lord already? Amen. Amen. Well, as many of you know, this last Sunday, we were able to elect and ordain six new deacons into the ministry of our church. And this morning has been a deacon training morning for our new deacons. And so this morning, we've invited to be with us one of my dear friends, Dr. Danny Sinkfield. Now, Dr. Danny served for almost 30 years as the pastor of Faith Baptist in Bartlett. He is retired from that position and now works for the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, which we support through our cooperative program, Giving. And so this morning, Dr. Danny's here, and he's going to speak to our church about what it means to be a leader and what it means to serve in our church. And so I want to pray for him, but as he comes this morning, I hope that you'll welcome with me right now Dr. Danny Sinkfield. Amen. Let me pray for you, brother. Father, as my brother comes to preach, we just ask that you would speak to our congregation from your word. And Father, that you would bless our congregation as we seek to serve Jesus according to your scripture. So Father, we ask that now you would draw near to us and speak to us and encourage your people from your word. Bless Brother Danny now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow, thank you, Pastor Jacob. And uh, what a privilege it is to be here this morning at the First Baptist Church of Huntington. I have loved and... Um, from a distance, admired the ministry of this church for a long time. Pastor Fred Ward was a great friend of mine. We served together as trustees at Union University back in the day. I had the privilege to meet uh, again and to see his dear wife today. And uh, to be with you, Pastor Jacob and Brother Henry and the staff, and uh, Melanie and Shane Bowen, who have transplanted up here from Bartlett area. To I hope they're doing, I hope I've sent you good church members from faith. Okay, so we got more to come, but uh, yeah, sometimes they're, they're not so good, but these guys are great. And, um, and I love this church so much, and thank you for the kind words. It's been an honor to be with the Deacon Brothers, and we're going to have um, some deacons and wives, I think, in a little bit uh, afterwards. Let me, let me just go ahead and cut to the point here of something that I've, I've just been dying to do this. Um, my wife and I, our family, we're still members of Faith Baptist in Bartlett, but now I'm out preaching on most Sundays, and so I, I love your church so much, and I don't know exactly what the polity and the processes are, forgive me for breaking rules, but I would like to make a motion that I could become an honorary member of First Baptist Church. If I could get a motion and a, sec or a second on that, all in favor say aye. Certainly there are none opposed, and I am so happy to be an honorary member. I'll, I'll get the offering envelopes in the mail, I'm sure, some of that kind of stuff. So. Amen, as we should. Well, um, you are blessed in so many ways. Beautiful facilities, beautiful people, heart-stirring worship, baptism this morning. What a, what a great privilege. Uh, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and be finding in your Bibles, Nehemiah, Old Testament Nehemiah. Find Psalms, go left. Nehemiah chapter 1. Be reading there and kind of looking at a few, um, few of the key passages there in that great book this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1. But I do love your pastor. You have one of the brightest and best. Uh, in our state. Um, I, I knew Pastor Jacob back when he was in seminary college, and, and um, so we are back in the seminary days, and so we have uh, seen him grow up, and beautiful family, met uh, his wife and the, and the boy child. I know the girls are all beautiful. I started to say the beautiful family, but then you have the son at the end, so he's just handsome. He's the handsome guy at the end. So um, I also want to bring gratitude and thanks to you from Dr. Randy Davis, who is our executive director of Tennessee Baptist Mission Board because First Baptist Huntington has been for a long period of time one of the leading key churches in our state in several categories. You guys are so generous, so gracious in all of your mission giving. 
uh, to all of the entities and agencies, the Lottie Moon and Eddie Armstrong and certainly the Golden Offering for Tennessee Baptist Missions, but to Cooperative Program, you guys are one of the leaders in our state, and I just want to say thank you for that. Um, Faith, the church that I pastored for um, nearly three decades, um, we believe in that as well, and so we are always glad to say thank you to churches who are, who are generous, who get it, who understand that it's not just about us, but we got, listen, uh, you know what the, the, the mission of First Baptist Church is, is to reach the whole world with the gospel from Huntington, Tennessee. And brothers and sisters, we have a lot of work to do. Um, just in our state alone, do you know that in the state now, we have 7 million people in the great state of Tennessee from Memphis up to Mountain City? The estimate these days are somewhere just over 4 million lost people in our state. 4 million lost people in our state. And so I, I'm asking you to join me in prayer and also in uh, just doing whatever it takes, whatever we, we've got to do to give and to go and to share the gospel um, with everyone, everywhere, anytime. And so uh, thank you in advance for all that you're doing there. Um, I am sharing a message this morning that's called Broken Walls and Burned Gates. It is a leadership uh, emphasis. I, I'm encouraging you to think about your place in our culture, your place in our broken world. And uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read beginning actually in verse number 2 down through verse 11. On a particular day when Nehemiah, who was minding his own business, asked the question, or actually saw some of the, some travelers coming, we pick up reading there that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Just a simple question on an ordinary day, how are things back home, how are things going in Jerusalem as he saw these travelers? And they said to me, here's where we pick up the passion of this story. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And we have in this text recorded one of the great prayers in the Old Testament. It's a heart-rending prayer beginning in verse 5. And I said, I pray, O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let, the ear, let your ear rather be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet will I gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom I have redeemed, who rather you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he adds, for I was the king's cup bearer. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for friendships. Thank you for the partnership that we, uh, Lord, we 
celebrate today just with brothers and sisters across our great state and thank you for this church lord your hand of blessing through the years and god the, the joy of celebrating lord as, as they celebrate today and next sunday lord their pastor's fifth anniversary god i pray that you would continue please lord to raise up men and women young men and young women lord to serve you to go out into the mission field to serve you in ministry to be godly laymen here in this community and beyond. Father, I pray that you would multiply the ministries, the vast ministries of First Baptist Huntington. Lord, that you would use this church to continue to make kingdom and gospel impact until Jesus comes back. Lord, I pray over us today as we hear uh, this reminder, Lord, of your call and your challenge to your people. Lord, what, what, um, what a privilege it is to be a part of the greatest work in the world. Father, I pray that you would draw people to yourself today and Lord, I pray that we would leave here more committed, more desirous to be used, Lord, by the King of kings and Lord of lords today. And I pray that in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. And while you're being seated, let me just remind you that there's a lot of things to love about the man named Nehemiah. As we, as we just barge into his story here, I, I want to remind you that, that Nehemiah was not a priest or a prophet. He was not a Baptist preacher or necessarily a Baptist deacon. He was an ordinary businessman. There's a, there's a lot to love about him but because he loved God and he loved God's people. In fact, he was, a, he was in a unique position in the court of a pagan king whose name is Artaxerxes. The Persians now were in control of most of the world, and they were the dominant force, and somehow this young man who was most likely and uh, almost, almost certainly born into the captivity that happened with the Babylonian captivity of Judah. You remember that story? He was born in captivity, but he never forgot where he came from. His mom and dad, God bless godly parents who share the story of our legacy and our heritage, right? That's, that's our, our role as parents, parents. He knew that this was not his home. He knew that where he was living was only temporary. And his heart was back in Jerusalem. And, and, and I love so much about him that, that he had this, this privileged position, kind of like a chief of staff. He even uh, says it here at the outset of verse, uh, the end of verse, uh, chapter 1. He says, I was the king's cupbearer. I want you to think about one of the most important job assignments in the court of this pagan Persian king. You may know this, but the, um, the number one tool for ancient assassination back in the day was through poisoning. Did anybody have breakfast this morning? Is your wife mad at you for any reason? Everybody feeling okay? All right. So in order to avoid that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, fate, the king employed usually three or four or more cupbearers. Now this is the job that every Baptist preacher wants. I just want to taste everything, right? I just want to have some of all of it. And so that was, that was his job. Before the king could be served the, the drink or the food, he was to taste it. And he was to look happy about it, because if the cupbearer wasn't happy, then nobody was happy. Uh, if you frowned and the king was worried that you didn't feel well, and so uh, we have here this, uh, this backstory of, uh, of uh, who he is and what he, what he did, um, and yet in that position, it was, a very, it was a very confidential post, if you will. He was uh, privy to a lot of conversations. He, he heard the king and the queen making deals behind the scenes. He, he knew who was coming to visit, and, and uh, he was a part of entourages of of leaders uh, across the known world at that time, and, and uh, he was always invited into the table to be a part of what was going on. So he and the king, though a pagan, pagan king, had a pretty close relationship, and you would want it that way if the guy who was in that role was guarding you from possible assassination. And so, so I just want you to notice this moment, this moment, it was just like an, any other day, 
Nehemiah was literally minding his own business. Now, have you ever had one of those days where you weren't thinking about anything that was going to be like, you know, this big event that was coming, and you were just literally minding your own business? This was Nehemiah. He saw some travelers coming, and he recognized them, uh, even a family member, one of his brethren, he says, Hanani. And, and he just called out and said, hey, guys, how, how are things going back home? And I'm sure that like most of us, when you say to somebody, hey, how you doing? What do people no normally say? We're all good. We're fine. Thank you. Most of us are lying about that, but that's what we say in our culture. It's all, it's all good. And to his shock and to his dismay, he heard words that literally crushed his heart and, and, and just broke him into a place of, of emotional uh, wound that occurred and lasted for many days and weeks. In fact, some scholars believe that this uh, grieving heart lasted for many months before he was back on duty again, and so or at least a month before he was back on duty again. Uh, and so I, I want you to write down this introduction if you're taking notes today. So more than stones and timber, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem represented more than just uh, the aesthetics, more than just the appearance of the great ancient city, but it rather represented the identity, the security, and the prosperity of God's people. And so when he asked how things were back home, how are things in, in Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of David, the city of God's presence, how are things back home? And, and he was hoping because some years earlier, a decade or so earlier, Ezra, the priest, had been sent back already to rebuild the temple. And here's what, here's what the hope was. Well, maybe since the temple's being rebuilt, everything's going great. Maybe God is prospering and blessing uh, the city of Jerusalem. Maybe we're ready to move back. It was near the end of the 70-year captivity, and uh, some, uh, some permissions had been granted already to go back and rebuild and do some things. And he was hoping, man, he was hoping. Have you ever been there? You were hoping. You asked the question, hoping to hear good news, but then your heart is broken. Because what you had hoped is not exactly how things were. And his heart was crushed in that moment. And it, basically what he heard was the, the city is in, in ruin. Um, the enemy is having free run and free reign over the city. In fact, the, the, the Jews, the, the people of God, were not only being marginalized, they were being mocked and made fun of. Have you noticed that sometimes history has a way of repeating itself? Have you noticed this? Have, you've noticed this because you know, you know our culture um, is not unlike that culture. How many of you know that the only religion in the world today, I'm talking about any religion, the only religion that has green light to make fun of, to marginalize, to criticize publicly and openly is the Christian faith. I mean, uh, stand-up comedians do it all the time. Uh, the culture of movies and television and media does it all the time. You know, Christians are the ones who are the object of scorn these days. You know, every time I hear somebody doing that on television or, uh, you know, in some, some movie, I just, I just, you know, I'm I have just enough meanness in me that I, I want to say, hey, you know what you should do? Take that joke over to some uh, Islamic country and make fun of their leaders, their God, and see how that works out for you. Because Christian folks, we're just nice, right? We just, you know, we just tolerate, let it happen, all that kind of stuff. We don't cut anybody's head off. We don't do any of that. So, so here, here's, the, here's the heartbreak moment. And, and he hears this news, and I want you to notice four character qualities, four themes of this, of this moment in history that are very, very noticeable in the life of Nehemiah. First of all, I want you to notice that he was a man of anguish. He was a man of anguish. Listen to it again. 
in verse number four. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He was a man of anguish. The word anguish is not a word that we use very often in our English conversations, our everyday conversations, but by definition, let me remind you that the word anguish really captures the, uh, the heartbreak here. Anguish is suffering of the soul. It is grief and distress of one's spirit. It is an excruciating, painful experience that affects body, spirit, and emotions all at the same time. In some ways, as we read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll see little moments where Nehemiah is representative or in some ways symbolic of a type of Christ, Jesus. I remind you of the anguish of our Savior as he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he saw the people scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And what does the scripture say in the New Testament? That he was literally brokenhearted, that he was moved with compassion. I I suggest it's the same emotion, similar emotion, only bigger than what Nehemiah felt here. It's it's a moment of anguish. It's a moment of anguish. Um, As Jesus was moved with compassion, you can read about that in Matthew chapter 9. Write this little principle down. The news literally dropped him to the ground. The news literally dropped Nehemiah to the ground. When it says here in the passage, in the text that we read, um, that that when he heard that, when he heard that report, that he sat down and wept, that Hebrew word that's translated here in, in the New King James, sat down, can also mean I was knocked down. He lost the ability to stand. One of the great war movies, if you've seen it, Saving Private Ryan, a story about a mother who had four sons, and three of them had been killed in World War II, and they were trying to rescue the fourth son who was behind enemy lines, and and uh, one of the opening scenes of that, of that movie has the mother with four stars hanging in her window, four sons serving in the, in the uh, service, in the army. There's a car pulling up the, the long driveway there in Iowa. And um, an army officer gets out, and I think their pastor gets out. And she opens the door, and th- no words are even said. As they are walking up the door, this mother already knows. She already knows. And what happens to her? Remember that scene if you've seen the movie? She literally loses her ability to stand. Her legs, this is Nehemiah. This is the anguish of his soul. He was literally dropped to the ground. The scripture says he wept and mourned as he fasted and prayed before the Lord for many days, weeks, and, and some scholars believe into several months until he was back on the rotation there uh, before the king. Let me ask you something. How, how long has it really been, church family, how long has it been that something so hard and so heavy has sent us, sent us to our knees, where we're in such anguish before God that sometimes we don't have the words, we're just crying tears and saying, Lord, help me. You know what I'm learning as a, as a, a dad and as a grandfather now, as a, a minister, I'm learning that, that those days come unannounced, unplanned. And they show up frequently. There'll be some knock on your door, whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually, some knock on your door sometime that'll take your breath away and cause you to stand. And I'm going to say, one of the things that God often prepares in the context of our lives is a moment of anguish that leads to what we see next in the life of Nehemiah. And and here's here's what Nehemiah knew. When he heard that report, he knew this. The way things were back home, the walls broken, and the gates burned. The way things were back home, 
were not the way things were supposed to be. Does anybody here have a sense of that in our culture? That the way things are right now? The world that our precious children, my grandchildren are growing up in, uh, the way things are in the world are not the way things are supposed to be. And, and then not only do we grieve over that, have anguish over that, but something ought to move in our spirit and say, you know what, the way things are are not the way things are supposed to be, and if God would help me, they're not the way things are going to continue to be. And, and I want to be a part of a church that has that spirit. The way things are are not the way things are supposed to be in our world. The gates are broken down. Our identity, our security, our prosperity, spiritually speaking, are, are laying in ruins. And, and, and if we say you know, to ourselves, well, that's just the way things are, no, that's not the way things are supposed to be. So, it, so this, this moment of anguish moved to, a, moved to another characteristic that I want you to notice. He was also a man of boldness. He was a man of boldness. And in chapter 2, we won't read it, but there came his time to be in his duty before the king as the king's cupbearer. And up until now, he had never been sad before the king because it was life-threatening and is not good job security if the cupbearer was sad. You need to be smiling, happy, and pleasant all the time or you got, uh, you know, you got treated poorly. And so he was a, a man of boldness because his heartbreak was noticeable to the king. And the king said, what's wrong? You've never been this way. You've never been sad before. What's going on, Nehemiah? And he says that in chapter 2. And um, let, me, let me just say, there, there, this was a moment for Nehemiah where he could have faked it. He could have said, yeah, I just had a bad day. We're all good, like most of us do. Or, if we could just be honest, as brothers and sisters, it, it, here's, what, here's what happens sometimes to us. See if you've ever done this. You ever had a situation or heard about something in our culture or something in the world, and you, you said this, maybe to yourself or maybe even out loud, you know, somebody ought to do something about that. You ever, you ever done that? <laughs> I'm trying to learn not to say that anymore because what happens almost always when I say that is the Lord speaks to me and says, why don't you do something about it? If you're grieving over it, if you have anguish of your soul, maybe God in heaven is saying, why don't you do something about it? And in this moment of boldness, Nehemiah knew this was, a, this was an opportunity that was either going to be good or not so good. It was going to be life or death for him, and he just shared his burden. And in this bold move, in this bold move, he began to, to unfold the plan or the, uh, the, the situation and, and uh, just shared the concern. And, and to his, and to his um, shock, King Artaxerxes, a pagan, a pagan Persian king, said this, what can I do to help you? Now, a pagan king doesn't just say that of his own doing. How many of you know sometimes the Lord works in mysterious ways? You know this, right? That the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he guides it and directs it to his own purposes. God directs the heart of even pagan kings. And so we, we have this moment, and, and, um, and, and he just takes out a big old piece of paper because he had a, you know, several weeks or months to work on it. And he said, King, you know what? Send me. I've got this list of things. Nehemiah, what do you need? Well, he said, I need permission. I need protection. I need provision. I need, you know, I need some people to go with me. And he had this whole list. Uh, and, and there was this moment. I love this moment of boldness because when the king said, what can I do? What do you need? The scripture says in chapter 2 that I prayed to the Lord my God. Every once in a while, we don't have time to call a prayer meeting. Sometimes we just have to send up a missile prayer. Y'all send up. Anybody here raise teenagers? 
Amen. Sometimes in the moment, we just say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God, please help me not to kill them, but help me, Lord, to do the right thing. Amen. This was that kind of prayer moment. In this bold moment, he just said, here's here's what it would take. And to his shock, to his shock, it all began to work out. The principle there, the bold plan began to unfold during his season of prayer. Sometimes God gives us the answer in the quiet places of our prayer. As, um, as I think about the leadership of the church, your pastor, your staff, your, the deacon brothers who, who serve this congregation, I'm reminded of uh, the nearly three decades of serving at Faith Baptist, we, a little church that you've never heard of, a church in Bartlett, Tennessee, in the shadow of the, you know, the mighty big Bellevue Baptist Church there, just literally three miles away. And yet God blessed our church family, and th- there were some moments of some crazy growth and some crazy ideas. We, we got on our, in our mind one day that we should buy the old Camp Cordova because it was for sale and it was unused, and, and the Lord opened up the door for us to do that. On several occasions, we thought, you know, it's time we should start a new church and, and, uh, or go send out some people to help some churches that were struggling, and we tried some things. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the joys of my, of, of my soul was to be a part of the church that said, um, we may not know how it's going to work out, but we're going to do something as God leads us, and if God will give us the, you know, God will give us the courage to do it. And, and there's something about a church taking on this bold spirit. You are the first Baptist church of Huntington. You are one of the leading churches in the state of Tennessee. Your best days ought not be the ones behind you. Somebody needs to say amen or oh me or something. Your greatest days ought to be the ones just ahead for you because the world is as dark as it's ever been. There's more lost people in our state than ever before. There's more in our culture that's in crisis than ever before. If ever this church needed to be salt and light and needed leaders to be on their knees praying before God and burdened before God, it is now. We, 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 we are in desperate days, and, and there needs to be some anguish over that. There needs to be some, some boldness that comes along with that. I, I'm reminded about a story that you're familiar with, and I want to speak to the men just for a moment. Do you remember that moment in, uh, in the early days of uh, the kings of Israel? Saul was king. Saul was the big you know, giant of a man. He was taller, a head taller than all the other uh, men of Israel. And, um, you know, the, the plan really wasn't for, for Israel to be a monarchy. God had always intended to, for it to be a theocracy, but they wanted a king, so God gave them what they wanted. They gave them, and they, they selected Saul. And remember, there's a moment where David, by Samuel, God's, God's anointed uh, leader, had been, had been, um, had been selected, the, 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 the least of Jesse's sons had been selected, but he was not yet um, in the position of the king of Israel. He was the next king of Israel. And his father, Jesse, sent him to go check on his big brothers. Now, I'm the youngest of five. I have big brothers. And uh, every once in a while, big brothers can pick on the little brother. I don't know if you knew this or not. That's a thing. Little brothers. We, we never do anything wrong. It's always the older brother's fault. And sometimes the older sister's fault. I'll just throw that in there. And so here's what happened. Jesse said, take this food, take these snacks. And go check on your brothers who are at war against the Philistines. They're at a place called the Valley of Elah. David did what his dad suggested. He went down. And there he found the army of Israel cowering against the mighty armies of the Philistines. Particularly because of one giant. And you know the story. And uh, he was cursing God and cursing God's people. And everybody was cowering down. Cowering down. And, and uh, Goliath was just insulting the name of God and David said why isn't somebody doing something 
Sound familiar? Why doesn't somebody do something? But David volunteered, and, and, and he said, I'll do something. Well, his brothers just began to mock him, make fun of him. You always put yourself out there. You're always thinking you're bigger than you are. There's no way to do it. But finally, David got brought to the king's presence, brought into Saul's presence. And Saul, in this, in this real you know, glamorous moment for King Saul, he tried to talk him out of it. He said, David, you're, just, you're a young man. This guy's a giant. You're small. He's huge. And somehow David began to reflect on the goodness and faithfulness of God about when he was keeping his father's sheep and there was the lion and the bear and he said I trust God to take care of this giant and there was this moment and I really you don't hear much taught or preached on this but there was a moment where King Saul said well if you're going to die at least you need to look good right and he gave David the shepherd boy gave him his armor you know his breastplate his helmet his sword his big shield all the, you know, all the tools that he needed to go and face. He said, here, wear all this stuff, and at least, at least, you know, if you die, it's not because we didn't try to help you. And you remember what David said? David said, with all due respect, King Saul, I cannot use your armor to fight the battle that God's called me to fight. Can I say something to all the men in the room, young and old, listen to me, guys, and to myself, to the pastor, to all the leaders of this church, listen, men, Dear God, help us never to give our armor away to another man to fight the battles that God's called us to fight. Here's what that looks like. Well, you know, I'm not much of a leader in my home for Christ or Christianity or for Jesus. I'll let the church do that. And thank God for the church. Thank God for uh, Vacation Bible School and Children's Ministry. And I know there are a lot of children that come without their mom and dad, but I'm going to say something. Dad, you're to be the pastor in your own home. You're to be the spiritual leader. Yep, you are. Don't just think that the, the school is going to teach them all of the uh, things they need to know. Listen, um, don't give away your armor to the school system. Don't give away your armor for, for God's sake. Don't give away your armor to the government to do it. God's called us to be the men, to be the leaders of this church, to be the leaders of the home. And, and it has to come from, from the heart of boldness. Thirdly, notice that he was not only a man of anguish, not only a man of boldness, he was a man of commitment. We see the commitment of Nehemiah multiple times. But in chapter 3, man, there's, uh, there's, this, there's these uh, moments where it looks like, you know, uh, there's no way possible they can rebuild that wall. And then we get to chapter 4. Turn in chapter 4 just for a moment. I want to just read one little bit of chapter 4 because this is a, a commitment moment. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 6 and following, Nehemiah said, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love that so much. Now it happened that the enemies heard about it. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed. They became very angry, and all of the enemies of the people of God conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, set watch because of them, against them day and night. Then Judah, verse 10, some of, the, some of the inside folks began to complain. The strength of the laborers is failing and there's so much rubbish, we are not able to build the wall. Let me, let me just make a couple of comments here of what was going on in this moment of, of halfway, a halfway moment, halfway finished project. The enemy knows that that if he can bring discouragement 
into the hearts of the leaders, the men, the pastors, the deacons, the leaders of the church, then he can create disharmony and disunity among the people. One of the things we always have to guard against is this spirit of, of being discouraged and, and um, thinking that it can't be done because we know it was done. In fact, in record-setting time, 52 days, the wall was built, completely finished, and put back together again, 52 days. But something happens in the middle of this. The halfway mark. Now, let me ask the question again. I'm picking on men because it's kind of, the, it's kind of my invitation, right? Is there any man in the room? I'm not talking to the ladies. Is there any man in the room who has some project around the house about halfway done? And it's been halfway done for a long time. How many women raise your hand, amen? You, you know, nudge him, hit him, hit him in, the, you know, in the ribs or whatever. There's something about that halfway spot. And the enemy knows that. And, and, and can begin to bring discouragement and, and, and can slow down the process. And even on the inside, can I tell you something as a pastor for, uh, for nearly three decades? I, I expected the world on the outside to not be happy with the things that we were doing. I expected sometimes we'd have pushback from the city government, from buildings and you know, starting new churches. I expected all that. But you know what hurts the most? Is the discouragement that comes from inside from the family. When Nehemiah was working as hard as he could, they were halfway done, and, and the people said, we're ready to give up. Can I just say this, brothers and sisters? God is too good, and life is too short for us to ever think about giving up. With the help of God, and for the sake of the Lord Jesus, let us never, ever quit. Let us labor for the Master. From the dawn till setting sun. Let us keep running the race that God's called us to run until we hit the finish line. As we look unto Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. And, and so we see here this, this man of commitment. And I just remind you, there are a few things worth fighting for. There's not a lot. But there are a few things worth fighting for. So they set a watch. They had some guards on the wall. They, they worked with a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other. Sword. They, they were ready to fight. Because there are some things worth fighting for. Now, there are some people, in fact, some churches that fight about everything. They're legendary. I can tell you stories. Um, but there are only a few things worth fighting for, really. Can I just name a couple of those? Uh, your family, that's worth fighting for. Our freedom, plenty of folks have fought and died for our freedom. Praise God for that. And thank you to the men and women who have served or are serving in our country's armed services. Amen. Never take that for granted. Our, our, our family, our freedom, and our faith. Our faith, the legacy that we'll hand down to our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren is worth our very best efforts and energies being expended. Please, this is not the time to sit on the sidelines and watch other people do it. This is not the time to just give a little bit. This is the time to get after it and give everything you've got. Your energy, your resources, your prayer, your, your emotions, your your heart, everything. This is a time right now in the, in the life of our world, in the life of our country, that we need God's people to get on the wall. Out of anguish and with boldness and with commitment. And then one fourth theme, real quickly. Listen, Nehemiah was a man of determination. You have to get to chapter 6 to see it. In fact, just, I'm just going to read a couple of verses there. Chapter 6, um, there in verse 1. Now it happened... Chapter 6, verse 1, now it happened when Sanballat, all those guys, the enemy, the rest of our enemies heard that 
that we had rebuilt the wall and there was no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not yet hung the doors and the gates. That was next. That the enemies, Sanballat and Geshem, sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. Let me give you just a little insight here. Whenever the enemy invites you to go down to the place called Ono, what do you need to think? Oh, no. I may be, I may be a little thick, but I'm not, I'm not that. I, I get it, right? I get it. And so he sent back a message at that invitation. Listen to it. Verse 3, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot, I will not, I must not come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Brothers and sisters, if the enemy can't discourage us, he'll distract us and try to destroy us. Jesus said it in John 10, 10, right? The thief comes but to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that more uh, that more abundant. The thief comes to do harm to us. And so the principle there, I want to remind you, we must never quit. We must never come down from our wall of God's call in our lives. The call to be a godly wife, mother, and witness. Never come down from that wall. The wall to come down from being a godly man, husband, father, leader in the community, leader in the church, never come down. And aren't you glad that Jesus never came down? They, they, were, they were mocking, they were, they were tempting, testing him. Come down from there as he hung on the cross. But he hung on the cross for the purposes of our salvation, to be the substitute, the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. That's the beautiful example that we see there. And, and here's the application. Like Nehemiah, we need some old-fashioned anguish in the house of God. How many of you know this is not the day to be entertained as the, as the people of God? We got so much of that going on. Nothing wrong with having fun and fellowship and all that. I'm not saying that. But, but these are the days of getting our hands dirty, of getting after it. We should not have to beg folks to get involved in ministry. There ought to be folks standing in line to serve Vacation Bible School, teach children's ministry, to lead in some areas of ministry. Well, you know, I always dreamed of a church like that, Brother Jacob. What would it be like to have a church where, where the people were so hungry and so ready and so willing to serve Jesus that, that, we had to, that we had to say, just a minute, we'll think of something. We'll create some new area uh, for you to serve. And, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that for your church, that you guys will, will absolutely understand that, that we need anguish and boldness and commitment and personal determination, that we weep over the lostness of our state, that we uh, are brokenhearted over the lostness of our own sons and daughters, our community, that we, we don't sit around and say, somebody ought to do something, but we, by the grace of God, say, Lord, help us, help this church family, help me. To do something about it. A story that I heard a few months ago, Brother Jacob, you may have you may have been in Brentwood at the last gathering of Tennessee Baptist, and Dr. Bruce Chesser, pastor of First Baptist Church in Hendersonville, was preaching the convention sermon, and he, and he shared a story, and I want to share that story with you, and I'll close with this. Dr. Chesser shared the story about, he said, the most unusual e evening service he had ever been in. It was uh, started with two people coming over the platform and giving a giving a testimony. And he said there was a young man in his late 30s, early 40s. He got up, and, and uh, there was a, a, a lady a little bit older. She was probably in her 70s, and she came up on the platform. And the young man began to speak first, and he said this. Not long ago, my life was in such a, such a horrible place that I didn't know what to do except end my life. I, I'd lost my family. My, my wife had left. Our kids were gone. 
I'd lost my job. I was addicted to drugs and drinking every day, and my finances were ruined. I, I didn't know what else to do. But, but on, on a particular day, I, I just made up my mind that this is, my, this is it. And he said, tomorrow morning, when I wake up, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to end my life tomorrow. So he said, I drank myself into a blackout stage. And to my surprise, when I woke up the next morning, I, I remembered my plan. I remember what I was going to do. He said, before I did that, he said, I, I got in my car and I drove around. I, I went back to my old neighborhood, went back to my old little town where I grew up, and I parked my car, and I just started walking up and down the streets, and I, I noticed that this was uh, my friend's house, and there was our playground, and, and then I saw down on the corner a, a church building. He said, I remember when I was a little boy, I used to go to that church, and so he said, I, there were some cars around. He didn't re realize it, but it was a sunny morning. He said, I just walked in, and he said, I remember the big room, and I walked into the big room, that's what he called it. And they were between services. And he said, um, man, I remember. They used to sing. and preacher used to preach. And he said, After, afterwards, he said, there were some, some doors like these doors that went out a long hallway. And down that hallway, there was a room, a classroom. And he used to go in there. And there was, the, there was the sweetest, kindest lady that loved him and taught God's word. And so he just walked out the doors and walked down the hallway. And he said, in his testimony, when I got to that door, I looked in. And what I saw there took my breath away. And that's when the slightly older lady began to speak. And she said, I, I saw him when he came to the door. I just thought he was one of the families picking up their children. But she said, I just said to him, uh, the kids are already gone to children's worship. You can pick them up there. But he stood there. And I looked up, and it was an awkward moment because I could tell. I could tell something was really wrong with this young man, just the look on his face. And, and then he spoke to me, and he said, Mrs. Johnson, do you remember me? And she said, I realized that he must have been, you know, one of the children that had grown up in our church and in my class. And I just tried to make light of it. I said something like this. I said, you know, uh, you kids, when y'all grow up, y'all change so much. But we old people, we stay the same. And she said, I looked at him. And he wasn't smiling. He didn't think that was funny. And he was just standing there. And she said, I could see him trembling. And so I got up out of my, out of my off, you know, the chair, the desk. And I started walking toward the door. And I, I prayed this prayer. Ms. Johnson said, Lord. Help me to remember this boy's name. Y'all ever prayed that prayer? I pray that prayer all the time these days. You know, to my own kids. I, don't, I can't remember the name. She said, as I was walking over, the Lord dropped it in my heart. And she said, Richard, Richard, is that you? And she said, when I said his name, he melted like butter. And I had to literally go and grab him. And when I grabbed him, I could see tears beginning to flood. I motioned one of the deacons in the hallway, and we came and we got him seated. And, and, and we were able to hear his story, and, and, and we were able to actually lead him to Christ. And, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a beautiful moment. And, and then the, the young man, Richard, said this to close. He said, that day literally not only changed my life, but it saved my life. And I just want to say thank you to this church for being there. And to Mrs. Johnson not only remember my name, but for sharing Jesus with me. They went down, the pastor got up and he said, tonight I had planned to preach a message from Luke chapter 10 on the Good Samaritan. You all know the story, right? He said, I just want to jump right to the, right to the end. I just want to jump right to, the, right to the close. He said, you know, we like to talk about the, the priest and the Levite that didn't do anything. The man was laying in the ditch. He was nearly dead. And, uh, and then the Good Samaritan came. But he said, I don't want to talk about any of those characters tonight till we close. I want to talk about that place that the Good Samaritan took that wounded man. What was it called? Remember what it was called? It was called an inn. He had bandaged him up, 
put him up on his own animal, and he took him to the inn. And uh, it was there that he put him into the care of someone. Who's the, who, who's the person that he put him in care of? You remember that? The innkeeper. All we know is the inn and the innkeeper. And here's what the pastor said. Church family, our church, this church, in this community, we are an inn where hurting and wounded and broken people ought to find, their, find themselves loved and cared for here. This church is just like that inn. And then the pastor said this, and every single one of you, not just the pastor, not just the deacon, but every single member of this congregation, you know who you are? You're an innkeeper. You're an innkeeper. You know somebody that is hurt, lost, wounded, thinking about the end, whatever. And here's the question that I want to leave with you this morning before I turn things over to the pastor and we have a brief moment of invitation. I want to I ask you this question. Just, a, just a, a very simple thing to think about this morning. Ask yourself this question. Who do I know? Who do I know that is near to me but far from God. And I want, you to, I want you just to let somebody's mind or somebody's face or name come to your mind right now. I bet you're thinking about somebody. It may be a brother or a sister or a child, a neighbor, a colleague, coworker, a student at your school. And here's what I've been doing for the past six, seven months now that I've served here in this role. As I've gone to different churches, I've brought these little white cards, a very simple little card. It's called a Harvest Prayer Reminder. And it simply says, someone close to me but far from God. And I've been asking churches, just like First Baptist Huntington, and folks just like you, to think about coming down during the invitation, picking up one of the cards. I've got them on the corners here near the prayer altars. Just take one. Maybe later today, put somebody's name down on that that you'll be praying for. And put it wherever you need it, in your Bible, on your desk, whatever, wherever you can find it. And, and let me tell you what's happened now. Um, over 2,000 of these cards have been taken. And they have somebody's names on them that you know that's close to you but far from God. And I'm asking you to do that. I, uh, the very first Sunday that I was preaching, I was preaching at another First Baptist Church in another town that I will not mention. And I, I had mentioned to the, um, to the um, interim pastor there that this is something I was trying, I wanted to do. And he said, oh, man. He said, you can do it. But, you know, here in this church, they don't, they don't come down the aisle very often. I, I'm not sure anybody will come, which was very encouraging to me, by the way. I thought, well, this is going to be great. Thank you for that. <clears throat> so I just did this. I just said, uh, you know, I just said, maybe during the invitation, you might want to come and get a card and start. Maybe you even want to come to the altar for a few seconds and just pray over that person that you're going to write down. Take this home with you. We don't, we don't want the cards. Nobody's going to collect the cards. I'm just asking you to take a card so you can pray for someone who's far from God and you know their names. And, and prayer is the beginning of a, of a movement of God sometimes. You know what happened in that church, Pastor Jacob? My wife Rhonda was with me, and, and, and so after I gave the invitation and the interim pastor came down, and I just went and sat with my wife, and she said, my wife Rhonda said, I think the whole church came down. Because that's what it looked like, the whole church came down. And I don't know, it may be two people or ten people, I don't know who's going to, it doesn't matter. It matters that you do whatever the Lord tells you to do. And I'm going to ask you to bow with me right now. And the music's going to begin to play in just a second, Pastor Jacob's going to come down and He's your pastor. He knows you. And, and today, you may be here today as a guest, and this would be a perfect day for you to come and say, we want to join First Baptist Church, and they can help you in that process and get you started on that journey. 
the church family here would love to say welcome home to you. It might be here that you're a, you're a church member and maybe you just need to recommit your life to some area, maybe some missing element. Maybe there's been no anguish in your heart or no prayer and burden over the condition of our world. And you might want to come and we pray with your pastor and just say, hey, pray with me. It might be that God's laying on your heart some, some commitment to go into some area of ministry to get something started or maybe a mission uh, enterprise. Maybe you come and share that with your pastor today. But the most significant thing of all is that there may be someone here today who's never called upon the name of Jesus, and I just want to remind you that that's the greatest gift, the greatest decision a person can ever make. I love Romans 10, 13 that says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, why don't you make that your prayer right now? Something like this, Lord Jesus, I am broken and I'm imperfect but I believe that you died on the cross for me and my sin. And Lord, today, I, like the young lady in the baptistry, I just want to say Jesus is Lord. Lord, I want him to be the Savior, Lord of my life. And right now, I, I commit my life to you. And if you're doing that right now, the angels of heaven rejoice, the Bible says. And this church would love to know about that. Why don't you come in just a moment and tell Pastor, uh, today's my day. I, I'm not going to just come in and do church. I, I need to get it right. I need to be real. I need to say yes to Jesus. It also may be that some of you really do want to come and take one of these little prayer cards and be serious about praying for a lost friend or family member. You do that as well during the invitation time. I'm going to pray. Pastor Jacob's going to come, and we're going to sing a song, and you, you do whatever the Lord tells you to do during this time. So, so let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, in the strong name of Jesus, that you're able to set people free, that you're able to, uh, to bring people to a place where they pass from death to life because of the gospel. And, because of the provision that you've made for us on the cross. Lord, I pray that no one would leave this building today with business left undone, whether that's putting their faith and trust in Jesus or surrendering to a call of ministry or to come to join as a member. God, whatever you have put in our hearts to do, help us to say yes, Lord, and help us to be unashamed and unafraid to walk down and, and, to, and to speak that commitment to the pastor. And Lord, others today have broken hearts over a lost family member, a lost friend, a lost colleague, a lost co-worker. God, I pray that today hundreds of these cards would disappear off this, off this platform because people have a burden. And Lord, we do want to pray for our lost brothers and sisters, our friends and our neighbors. So God, we, we turn this time over to you. This is your, this is your time. Holy Spirit, would you, would you move powerfully now in this room? And I pray that in Jesus' name.